It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, July 13th, 2021. Hello, welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Glad to have you here. If you don't know me, I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. A lot of TV duties coming up later this week. I'll tell you about them really starting tomorrow when I head up to New York. And I'm also the host of this weekday program. Every day, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. That's when we air live. If you can't listen to the new show, we have a podcast. It is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. Lots of options there, on demand, no charge. On today's show, we are stacked. Here's the lineup. Charlie Hurt will join me coming up later this hour. To kick off the next hour, Governor Greg Abbott, Republican, Texas. His first time on this show. Looking forward to that conversation and... You may have heard there's some news coming out of his state politically. We will be addressing that here in our opening monologue. We will get the governor's reaction in the next hour. Jack Cittarelli wants to be a governor in New Jersey, where he's running as the Republican nominee. That election is this November. It's an off-year cycle in New Jersey. He will join us in our middle hour as well, the 4 p.m. Eastern hour. Finally, kicking off our happy hour, the final hour, Bill Hemmer, our colleague here at Fox News co-host of America's Newsroom. He will drop by, and that's always fun. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you stats. Coronavirus cases in the United States, cumulatively, way down, of course, which is great. But the number overall is 33.8 million. That's a significant low ball. The death toll in the U.S. from COVID now 606,577. Up on Wall Street, the closing bell right around 52 minutes away, and the markets are mixed to down today. The Dow currently down 74 points, trading at 34,922. Across the board, record closes yesterday. So as I mentioned, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, he will be here in the next hour. We will have a lot of questions for him about the stunt that is playing out right now from members of the state legislature in Texas. Democrats have fled the state. Now, we've seen this occasionally. This is not new, not even new to Texas. In fact, back circa 2003, Democrats in Texas ran away to try to block a redistricting plan, right? Reapportionment or redistricting in the state of Texas where Republicans who had won elections and controlled the legislature, they controlled the process of drawing the lines for congressional seats. Democrats didn't like it, so they ran off. I think some went to Oklahoma. I think some went over to New Mexico. Ultimately, though, this standoff didn't work, and the lines were drawn. We saw it in Wisconsin. The Democrats ran away trying to block some of the reforms under Governor Walker. That failed. Then 
After that failed, Democrats in Indiana tried the same thing, try to protect unions on a vote. This was roughly 10 years ago. So they saw the failure in Wisconsin and said, let's try that ourselves. So they did, and they failed. Republicans did it in Oregon a couple of years ago. And now here we have the Texas Democrats doing it again. Although this is a particularly clownish performance. The quick background is this, and we've talked about it previously here on the show. Texas is on the verge of passing a new elections law, which does a number of things. It tightens up some ID provisions on mail-in ballots. It gets rid of some of the emergency balloting provisions that were put in because of a pandemic. They're saying that does not need to be institutionalized forever in the state of Texas. We're going to claw back some of that stuff because it's not going to be an ongoing perpetual emergency anymore. Let's pull in the reins on that just a little bit, tug it back in. And there are some other changes that are being proposed as well. Now, there are certain elements, at least of the initial bill, that I questioned, and it looks like they're actually going to change. Like they were going to limit at one point Some of the early voting on a Sunday in particular, which rankled some supporters of Souls to the Polls, saying that was targeting black churches in particular, that provision is likely to be gone. They also had brought down the threshold or loosened the standards for challenging a slate of electors, for example, and I think that that is likely to get jettisoned as well. So some of the things in this bill that I was at least willing to raise an eyebrow over are being tweaked and amended or undone. And some of the other things that they're doing are just basic common sense. And even with the restrictions, quote-unquote, Texas, just like we saw in Georgia, will still have more generous voting opportunities, early voting, and some of these other things than a number of other states, including deep blue states. New York, Delaware and some of these states are now trying to scramble, realizing that they've got a talking point problem. Because if they're going to point at Texas and Georgia and scream Jim Crow, which is what they do constantly. In fact, President Biden is giving a speech today where he's just lying his rear end off about all this stuff. Demagoguing, fear-mongering, outright telling dishonest statements. I think you can call it lying. And invoking Jim Crow which he loves to do. He invokes Jim Crow all the time. In fact, he says what's happening in Georgia and states like that in Texas is worse than Jim Crow, which is just unbelievably untrue. Insultingly so. But if you're going to point at Georgia and Texas and get blue in the face yelling Jim Crow, and then your own state, Mr. President, Delaware, has had for decades much stricter laws, there's a bit of a problem there, wouldn't you say? And, of course, it's actually not about saving democracy or stopping Jim Crow or any of that. It's about politics. And so, because they don't have power, the Democrats in Texas, because the voters in Texas have had their say over and over again, and the legislature is controlled by the Republican Party, the governorship is controlled by the Republican Party and Governor Greg Abbott, these are the officials that have been elected, chosen by the people of Texas. They want to make some of these changes in a bill overall that I think is pretty reasonable. 
And fine, if you have questions about some specifics, by all means, debate them. Offer amendments. That's what the process is for. But the gap, as usual, between the hysterical rhetoric about what's in a bill versus what's actually in it is enormous. It's a yawning canyon separating hysteria from fact. Fiction from reality. Scare tactics from what's actually in the bill. And so they don't have the power. They can't stop it. Republicans have the votes. And so what the Democrats have done is they have fled the state. But they haven't just gotten in their cars and driven off to neighboring states. They've got a new plan this time, and it is hilariously bad. I can't imagine. It's almost as if Greg Abbott and the Republicans got together and said, if the Democrats are going to flee the state to deny us a quorum, because that's the whole point. You can't operate without a quorum. So if all these Democrats leave, they're mostly in the House. If they leave, then you can't pass anything because everything comes to a standstill. You need a certain percentage of the legislative body to be present to proceed with business. So that's the whole point of this, to deny quorum. And it's not going to last forever because these people have families and jobs in Texas. They might not really want to live in Texas. They might prefer to be in Washington, D.C., which is where they've run away to. They've come here. right? For these Texas leftists, D.C. might be more to their liking rather than the free state of Texas. But because they've got kids and spouses and jobs and lives back in Texas, they're not going to hold out forever. So this is a stunt. They're fundraising off of it. They're documenting all of it on social media. But again, if I were the Republicans in Texas, I'm not sure I would have drawn this up any differently. Like, you can imagine the Republicans saying, are they, are they really doing this? Are they really doing it this way? Oh, yes, they are. It's real. It is spectacular. So they got some jets chartered for them. Because nothing says for the people like getting on private chartered flights. And they're taking all these selfies. And in some of the selfies, it's like, oh, here's a case of beer that we've brought with us on our chartered bus to the chartered plane. They got Miller Lite. And as a few Texas Republicans, like Senator John Cornyn was pointing out today on the Senate floor, they didn't even choose a Texas beer, like Shiner or something. No, they went with Miller Lite, so a non-Texas beer, which is actually sort of on brand here. right? It's, it sort of fits. It's very appropriate. They're leaving, they're abandoning their jobs and fleeing to Washington, D.C. This is the other thing that I love. Apparently, this was the report that they were thinking about going to Arizona so they could, quote-unquote, lobby Kirsten Cinema to change her mind about the filibuster or whatever. Or they were going to go to West Virginia to go after Joe Manchin, who's against the For the People Act. And apparently what they decided was, no, we don't really want to go to Arizona. West Virginia sounds sort of boring because these are Austin Democrats. So they decided they were going to, in all of their infinite wisdom, take their private charter jets with their non-Texas beer and fly to the swamp of Washington, D.C., which you might call their natural habitat, if you think about it. Right? This, is, this city, Washington, D.C., is much more to their liking, I'm sure, than Texas. Texas, a red free state, Washington, D.C., deep, 
deep blue. So they're here. They're very proud of themselves. But again, I don't think they're really thinking any of this through beyond a pure base play. Because if you're going to do a massive stunt and grind the entire legislative process, this is now a special session, because remember they ran away at the end of the regular session to avoid this, and so Greg Abbott said, all right, fine, we're coming back for a special session. They've run away again on these chartered flights to D.C. It's not sustainable. They're going to have to come back, and Abbott's saying, when they do come back one by one or all together, we're going to arrest them and compel them to come to work. So it's just a matter of buying some time here and delaying and showing how much they care about democracy or whatever. And they care so much about democracy that they are literally leaving their jobs and fleeing the jurisdiction and the people that they're representing in order to stop the democratic process from moving forward. Isn't that interesting? And like a bunch of trained barking seals, the media is clapping along. Because when Democrats do things like this, it's good. Because they're good. And their goals are good. When Republicans do anything like taking advantage of certain rules to block or delay things, bad. Anti-democracy. Right? Ruinous for the country. Anti-democratic. Whatever the words are going to be. Including, I love how so many of the people who have been agitating against the filibuster in the U.S. Senate, which is a commonly used tactic and practice for the minority, for both parties... Right, they used it uninterrupted for six and a half years, the Democrats. They were the only ones for the last six and a half years until just the last few weeks. They had done all the filibustering. That was all fine. Not a peep. Then they barely get a 50-50 plus one majority, and instantly all the people who had nothing to say for six and a half, oh, the filibuster is so undemocratic. We have to get rid of it. This is terrible. Tyranny of the minority, all this stuff. And then you have the Texas Democrats doing like this like filibuster on steroids where they're running away. And the very same people who are very concerned, asking questions, quote-unquote, these activist journalists asking questions, constantly lobbying Democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema, aren't you going to... They're all fascinated and delighted by this brave move by the Texas Democrats... Because, ultimately, people are just hacks. They like it when their side does things. They don't like it when the other side does things. And they justify it by saying, well, we're good, though, you understand. And they're bad. So they use tactics for bad reasons. We use them for good reasons. They convince themselves, oh, we're, we're saving democracy. They're doing nothing of the sort. But because it's a stunt, because it's unsustainable, because they're going to eventually come back and get dragged into actually, heaven forbid, do their jobs... You at least want to bring public opinion in your direction. And I'm wondering if taking chartered flights to Washington, D.C. with your Miller Lite, it's like it was all designed in a laboratory to have the opposite effect. And by the way, some of their photos that they're taking on these planes, these jets that they're on, they're all smiling, no masks. If you or I want to get on a flight a commercial flight, and go anywhere, we have to wear a mask. We'd get thrown off the plane. You'd get arrested. The little people, the plebes like us, we have to wear masks for our safety. And the Democrats, oh, yes, oh, yes, science and safety and risks, uh, they're all for that. But then they get their special little airplane paid for by God knows who, 
donors. And they're all smiles, no masks, on their special private chartered airplane as they fly away, fleeing their state to the swamp where they're going to lobby their fellow Democrats to try to pass something that would take over the entire nation's electoral system and rip the power away from Austin and their own state. Sounds about right, doesn't it? They're avoiding a vote by fleeing on private chartered jets to Washington, D.C. with no masks. And if you or I tried to do the no mask thing, it wouldn't end well for us. It's just different rules, special rules for special people. And I wonder how the people of Texas feel about all of this. I have a hunch. I have a hunch. I want to talk about the media coverage of it and then play you a soundbite. They had a press conference today here in Washington. They decided to sing. It did not go well. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So the Texas Democrats have fled the Lone Star State. They're here in Washington, D.C., America's favorite city, certainly Texans. They love D.C. So they came here. This is their big plan on their uh, chartered planes. And amazingly, national Democrats are, like, embracing all of this. Vice President Harris is going to meet with them. Chuck Schumer is meeting with them now. I'm sure progressive activists are thrilled by all of this, and they're going to raise a boatload of money. But I can't imagine Texas Republicans being any happier with how this is all playing out in terms of the optics and the substance. So the Dems held this press conference here on Capitol Hill in D.C., and one of them was talking, and then they broke out into song. The cringe is overwhelming. Cut 13. We will overcome. We will overcome. We will overcome someday. They might still be... uh, Hung over on Miller Lite, perhaps. And when they get back to the chorus again, and they're just appropriating this civil rights anthem and applying it here, it's actually pretty gross. But they can do what they want to do. They get back to the chorus, and some of them are singing, the, we shall overcome. She's singing, we will overcome. They're looking at each other. Some people are kind of singing along like they're in church, but they don't have the words. It was quite a show. And I want to talk about the media coverage. We'll get to that with Charlie Hurt next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. GuyBensonShow.com Back here on the Guy Benson Show, still to come in the next hour, Governor Greg Abbott, Republican Texas, he'll be here to respond to all of it. As we just ran through in our opening monologue, the first two segments, this show, this performance, this stunt from Texas Democrats who have fled Texas 
here for Washington, D.C. They've flown on charter jets without masks on, which is special. They have special rules that we don't have, special for them. They have their cases of beer, non-Texas beer. They're sharing it all on social media, and they are just cheered on by left-wing progressives, including most reporters. But I think that they are appealing to a very narrow choir, right? Twitter loves it, but Twitter is not real life. In fact, remember we told you recently about that data, that if Twitter were a congressional district, it would be the second most liberal congressional district in the entire country. It's like D plus 40 or something. It's not real life. It's certainly not real Texas. Joining me now is Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at the Washington Times, Fox News contributor. Charlie, good to have you. Great to be with you, Guy. Have you, I, I wanted to move on to other topics, but I, I, I'm not quite done with this one. Have you seen <laughs> the video from the press conference today when they tried to sing? No, it's, it's uh, you, you want to carve your eyeballs out with a rusty spoon. It's, uh, and the hypocrisy is just absolutely breathtaking, as you, as you point out. So I'm just, we're going to play it again in case people happen to miss it. So one of these lawmakers is at the podium and, you know, yelling about democracy and everyone's nodding. And then seemingly, to his surprise, one of the female lawmakers just starts belting out, we shall overcome, except she's singing, we will overcome. And then they join in, but they're not sure which of the lyrics to sing, because she is confidently singing will. Other people, I think the traditional version is shall. It sounds like they're a little rusty on their singing. Just one more time, cut 13. We will overcome. We will overcome. We will overcome someday. Deep in our hearts, I do believe we will overcome someday. Okay, so. Thank you, Miss T. Yeah. They're looking at each other, and you can see some people are singing shall, some people are singing will. Others are nervous, like, "Uh uh-oh, I should know the lyrics to this, but I don't. So they're sort of mouthing (laughs) along. I likened it to being in church, and there's a hymn on, and you're kind of faking it if you don't remember. You don't have a hymnal. You don't know all the words. And they're glancing sort of nervously at each other. Um, And and so it is a hardcore cringe moment. Beyond that, Charlie, though, that song has power and meaning based on oh, yeah. what that song helped this country and activists achieve and overcome true discrimination and evil. And I think, again, it's their call. It's a free country. They can say or sing what they want. But to apply that to this situation when they've run away from their own state to stop the democratic process about an election reform bill that does not even come close to the type of rhetoric, including from the president today, who's doubling down on the Jim Crow stuff. I mean, they can they can try to convince people this is Jim Crow all over again. I think a lot of people are going to say that's BS and will be turned off by this. And, and they're fleeing the Texas legislature at a time when they're also calling to end the filibuster in the yep. United States Senate yes. which protects minority rights. It makes no yep. sense. Mm-hmm. It's insane. And and but you're exactly right, guy, about the about that song, that song. And it, and it reminds me a little bit. I, and when f- someone first mentioned it to me, because I missed it live when Jen Psaki made uh, talked about this, this being uh, the, the greatest burden that America has faced since the Civil War. Right. To uh, our democracy. About these Republicans. Wow. I mean, holy 
Toledo. This is, you know, and, 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 and the shallowness of their understanding of history is, it's breathtaking. It's, it's a sign of their, uh, of, of just un, unrivaled ignorance and uh, really their titanic self-regard. You know, and if, if you believe history didn't occur, then uh, a big reason a lot of those people believe that is because they think that history began the first moment that they themselves took a breath of air. And I think that's a big reason why a lot of these people don't have any regard for history. But as you point out, that song in particular, and when Joe Biden denigrates the extraordinary contributions and the great struggle and all that we as a country overcame throughout the civil rights movement and overcoming and quashing uh, true calculated evil that we saw during uh, with, with Jim Crow legislation in this country. It is such an attack on the very finest people that our country has ever produced. And the, the, the good, uh, decent, honest, honorable people who helped usher our, this country through truly some of the most difficult times in our history and did it with malice towards none and uh, and love for all and for, to, to have them denigrate all of it and 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 in particular with the the singing of of uh, the the mangled singing of we shall overcome it really does reveal you know expose them for their their disregard for history in 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 uh, you know in, in their unending uh, estimation of the for, for the for, you know for their own for their own self. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the self-righteousness and the the, yeah. the constant search for self-glorification and meaning. Yeah. I mean, the, the tweets from some of these lawmakers are unbelievable, like talking about their sacrifice and how they're being greeted <laughs> like heroes in Washington. I mean, it's it's I I am laughing at it because it is genuinely funny what they're doing oh, yeah. here. And I think yeah, Texas like- Republicans have to be thrilled because the optics and I was making this point. Uh, before you joined us in the previous segments, Charlie, they have made a decision. Right, This was a choice made by a group of adults whose job is politics. The group of adults decided, hey, let's charter some planes, get some big, rich donors to charter us some private planes. Let's get on those planes with a bunch of beer, not even Texas beer. Let's fly to Washington, D.C., of all places, and let's do it without wearing masks on, like an extra F you to the normal people who have to wear masks on airplanes, no matter if you're vaccinated or not. I mean, it's you couldn't have drawn this up better if you're the Republicans. And I was thinking, why? Why would someone say, hey, let's go to Washington and do it this way? And everyone else would just be like, yes, good idea, let's do it. And this is my answer, at least a partial answer to that question. And I want to read you a quote and then get your reaction. This was from last week. There was a piece from a journalist called Julia Ioff, and she quoted what she describes as a prominent White House reporter. And this reporter is talking about covering Republicans and covering Democrats in Washington. And here's the quote from this According to Julia Ioff, who's a well-known journalist, a prominent White House reporter, quote, Democrats in general have a much thinner skin. This is not unique to Trump. Republicans never expect a fair shake. So if you cover them fairly, you can have a good working relationship with them. Democrats de facto expect you to be on their side. 
and are horrified when you hold them to account as you would any other administration. And this person goes on to talk about uh, how they would get berated by Obama staffers, for example, by just like, you know, covering them and doing their job. And I find this quote to be incredibly useful and revealing and reinforcing of what we already know. But I, again, I think it goes to the psyche here and the, the expectations game. There's a reason why Democrats expect journalists to be on their side oh, because yeah. journalists are on their side. <laughs> so, of course, they're going to get pissed off if journalists occasionally, you know, don't sing from the same songbook or, you know, you know, wander off of the program every so often. They get angry because it's like, hey, excuse me, we're Democrats, you're reporters, we're playing for the same team, Team Blue, Team Progress, and they get really angry, whereas Republicans are just expecting that the press is an appendage of the opposition. So if you just do a basically fair job, Republicans will be like, oh my gosh, thank you. I mean, this is such a useful quote. I'll say it again. Quote, Democrats de facto expect you to be on their side and are horrified when you hold them to account. That is the expectation that I think is rational and well-earned because this is the way things work. And I think, Charlie, because of that cozy relationship, because the press so often will carry any amount of water as far as Democrats ask them to, this is how they convince themselves that embarrassing, horrible optic stunts like this Texas to D.C. you know, jet set is a good idea because they feel like the press will be on their side and will treat them like heroes. Maybe they're right, but I think the public, even when you have a full full court press from the media, the public can see through it. And in this case, I think that even if you have the full-blown media Democrat alliance doing everything they can to make this seem like it's something really urgent and noble, I just don't think it's going to play in the country. And I think it's especially not going to play, based on what I know about Texas and the Texas electorate, I think this is a gift to Greg Abbott and the Republicans. Yeah, and, and I also think that, you know, whatever, you know, some people think of Donald Trump, one of the things that he did expose is the fact that uh, that all of this is happening sort of in a teacup. The, the, the media coverage, the media coverage and the, the bias, it's kind of happening in a teacup. And if you're willing to just sort of bluster your way through all of it, it actually doesn't – nobody actually pays, is paying attention to a lot of this stuff. And what you wind up with is you have these Republicans. They're kind of like victims of, of abuse, of like ongoing you know, close relationship abuse, where, and they just – and it's, they inexplicably keep coming back to the same abusers, and they get, and they get lied to, and they get gaslighted. They get uh, horrible treatment. They get you – know, but, but yet they keep going back. And you can break the cycle. You can do what Trump does, and I think to, to some degree what, what Ron DeSantis does in Florida, where you just say, screw you guys. I'm going to, do, I'm going to go my own way and, and try to reach people my own way. But then, but then the, the, the flip side of that is Democrats, it, for a lot of reporters, it's almost like they're – it's like Stockholm syndrome because they yep. are so <laughs> captive to Democrats and they work so hard to accommodate them and give them what they want that like you say if anybody ever veers off of the reservation look what you know look what happens to Alex Berenson uh, you know who has a long great career in journalism and in reporting work for the New York Times as soon as you step off the reservation on one of these issues you get destroyed 
And it's because you know, you know, Cheryl Atkinson, I mean, Barron's and I yeah. have some issues with, but there's one example after another of this. So what happened to you? It's like, well, you know, I might think a little bit differently. It is hardcore groupthink among the D.C. press. Uh, and I would say when you when you feel like and we'll we'll pivot away from this topic in a second. But if you're the Democratic Party and you feel like the media will always have your back and help, you know, cover for you and help carry your water. That breeds arrogance and complacency and stupid decision-making. And you get high on your own supply, and you feel like, oh, this little world that you've established for yourself, we all like it and think this is great. And, you know, the Democrats, given how much support they get from the media writ large, they should never lose an election. But there's a reason why they (laughs) do lose elections, and it's because the American people have a bit of a BS meter – And especially on stuff like this, I think it goes off. Charlie, I want to shift to an event that is happening tonight in Denver, Colorado. It should be happening in Atlanta, Georgia, but it's going to be in Denver. The Major League Baseball All-Star Game, the Midsummer Classic. I am not a big boycott guy. I'm not boycotting Major League Baseball. I'm watching a lot less this year. I will not be watching the All-Star Game tonight. I think what happened with the All-Star Game relocation was an absolute craven, ignorant cave job to the woke mob. It was not rooted in fact, although it comes back to these state laws and Jim Crow and all. It's sort of, it's all related here. And what I like, Charlie, is that there are some conservative groups that are punching back. So there are ads that are going to be running during the All-Star Game in certain markets, one from the Republican National Committee, one from a group called Consumers, uh, Consumers Research. Let me play you cut eight first. This is the RNC ad. This was supposed to be Atlanta's night, but we were robbed. Democrats stole our All-Star Game to push their divisive political agenda. Politicians and corporations lie while black communities got hurt the most, even though a majority of black voters support laws like voter ID. To Democrats, it's just a game, but we're the ones who got played. The Republican National Committee is responsible for the content of this advertising. And consumers research here in Cut 9. Commissioner Rob Manfred moved the All-Star game from Atlanta, parroting dishonest partisan talking points. Why is he making baseball political anyway? Because of his terrible record. Viewership way down, ticket prices way up, sketchy deals in China. And Manfred has been so bad that Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders agree. Maybe the league should pay taxes like everyone else. Rob Manfred, Major League Baseball. Serve your customers, not woke politicians. Charlie, just some of the pushback here on the right. I think that Corporate wokeism, we've seen polling, it's very unpopular. This is something that still deeply bothers me. And I just wonder your reaction to what you just heard, those those ads, and how a lot of rank-and-file fans like myself have a bitter taste right now about the game. Yeah, I, you know, the, the ads are great, obviously. Um, and I think they're very, uh, they're very, and, and what's interesting about it is, in particular, the Republican ad is so powerful because it actually accrues to the, to Republicans. It actually helps Republicans as opposed to sort of winning this particular, uh, p- particular fight in which I, th- I, I, I do believe that MLB, um, you know, you d- did so much to damage their own credibility. And I agree with you about that. I, I don't like boycotts either for political purposes, but it is interesting. I, wa- I personally watch about 1% of the, 
of the of the Major League Baseball today that I did in previous years. But it doesn't have anything to do with a, an intentional boycott. It has to do with the fact that every decision they make is always this craven, uh, profit-driven decision. And and in this case, it was a very stupid one. They 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 outthought themselves. They thought yeah, that and, they were and by the winning. way. And Charlie, just on this point and on the politics of it, I saw an Atlanta reporter say the Republicans in Georgia are going to try to pin this, the blame for this, on the Democrats in Georgia. I'm like, well, they can probably pin it on the Democrats in Georgia because the Democrats in Georgia are the ones who are yelling Jim Crow. And the president of the United States endorsed the moving of the All-Star Game. So the Democrats kind of made the Republican argument for them here, and I think it's important to remind people that that happened and the implications. Charlie, we've got to run. Charlie Hurt on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Governor Greg Abbott of Texas coming up next live on The Guy Benson Show to kick off our next hour. In the meantime, part of the reason that the Dow and NASDAQ might be down today might be related to the inflation metric that came in. The Consumer Price Index surging by 5.4% through June, which was the largest year-over-year increase since 2008. So it's been a minute. And experts were anticipating less of an increase, but it was at 5.4%. So that has spooked the markets, and people are concerned about inflation. And yet Washington, D.C., they're talking about trying to spend trillions of more dollars. What could possibly go wrong? Another hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our website for the free podcast. And as we get going, Fox News Alert. The Dow closes down 107 points to 34,888 up on Wall Street. Joining me now for the first time on this show is the governor of the great state of Texas. Greg Abbott, a Republican, is here. And, Governor, it's a pleasure to have you. Great to be with you, Guy. Big fan. Love your work. I appreciate that. I have to say, there are so many members of the Texas legislature here in D.C. It's like they've got a little outpost that they've set up. Here in the nation's capital, as opposed to the Texas capital of Austin, they have fled the jurisdiction. They chartered some planes, it looked like, got a bunch of Miller Lite, no masks on the flight, which is pretty great for them, not so great for the rest of us who like to travel. (laughs) We're not allowed to do that, but they're here, and they're not there. Give us the background of why this is happening, and this is their second sort of flee move to try to prevent this election law, right? Uh, sure. Listen, um, uh, have you ever heard of Babylon B? Of course. Big fan. 
So they, they, they just printed an article talking about how genius it was uh, that the governor of Texas was able to get all the Democrats to leave the state. <laughs> and so this could be a, a master plan uh, that other states are trying to copy. But, but uh, more seriously, this is an abdication of duty by people who are elected to go to the Capitol in Austin, Texas, to get a job done. Worse than that, uh, they're in Washington, D.C., showing nothing but hypocrisy, because one thing they are seeking to, to accomplish in Washington, D.C., uh, is to try to compel Democrats in Washington to end the filibuster. So the strategy they're using to get Democrats in Washington to end the filibuster is for Democrats in Texas to use the filibuster in Austin, Texas. That's, that is the epitome of hypocrisy by the Democrats. Another thing I'd like to point out, you did talk about the Miller Lite, for those who don't know what, what guy's talking about it, and that is that uh, the, the Democrats, when they fled the state of Texas, uh, they had uh, a, like a case of Miller Lite with them. But what did they have to use to, to buy that Miller Lite? And it required an ID, just like an ID that is required to vote, uh, which is one thing they're protesting about, despite the fact that Texas has, for years now, uh, had a voter ID requirement. Let's, let's go back to the beginning, and that is that the Democrats, uh, they are raising an uproar about an issue that really is not in existence. They're, they're claiming that uh, Texas Republicans are trying to pass a law that deny them the right to vote, which is the most absurd thing I've ever heard of. What Texas is actually doing, we are increasing the number of hours to vote, not decreasing. Texas has 12 days of early voting, and we are increasing the hours available to vote during those early voting days. I might point out, Guy, that uh, if you look at the early voting days Texas has, it's far more than what exists in Joe Biden's home state of Delaware, which is exactly zero days of early voting. So if anybody wants to talk about voter suppression, they should talk about what's going on in Delaware, not in the Lone Star State. Well, speaking of the president, he just gave a speech today, and he was referring to a whole host of issues, but uh, within that basket of issues are some of these state-level bills and laws that are being passed, including yours in Texas, and he called this a 21st century Jim Crow assault on democracy. What's your reaction to that from the president? Well, uh, remember something, and this is the same president who called me a Neanderthal when I opened up Texas 100% eliminating the mask mandate. And all that happened after I did that so-called Neanderthal action uh, was to have the number of cases and hospitalizations and COVID positivity rate all decline in Texas improved dramatically after that. So uh, his calling names uh, is, is absolutely absurd for one, but for another, anybody who went through Jim Crow would be angry at the president of the United States equivocating what is going on in Texas with Jim Crow laws. Uh, because that is the most offensive thing ever. Let's go back to what I said. Texas is increasing, not decreasing, the number of hours to vote. If you want to say Jim Crow laws exist anywhere, again, you should say that it exists in Delaware, where you have zero early uh, voting days or hours. But more than that, uh, Joe Biden himself knows full well about the election fraud that takes place in the state of Texas because of the Obama-Biden administration. Two quick examples. One is that Barack Obama appointed a federal district judge in Corpus Christi, Texas, that issued a ruling about voting in the state of Texas where that Obama-appointed judge wrote that voter fraud occurs, quote, in abundance as it concerns absentee balloting. Absentee balloting is exactly what we're trying to address in the state of Texas, and the Barack Obama judge says it occurs in abundance in the state of Texas. On top of that, the Obama-Biden administration 
they sent a team of FBI agents as well as a U.S. attorney to South Texas to uh, investigate and to arrest and to prosecute a voter fraud scheme where cocaine was being used to buy votes in South Texas. Joe Biden knows full well voter fraud is real in the state of Texas. It is right to uh, have Texas address voter fraud, especially as it occurs uh, in the mail-in ballot, uh, absentee ballot situation. And even Democrats on the Texas House floor in Texas agreed that we can achieve greater voter integrity by addressing absentee mail-in ballots in Texas. So we have this stunt from these lawmakers who have left your state on their chartered flights and uh, they're now here in D.C. They're meeting with the vice president, apparently. They're meeting with Senator Schumer. I'm sure this is delightful to many progressives around the country. The left-wingers on Twitter seem to love it, but I kind of feel like the people of Texas might take a slightly different view. I can't imagine that you're terribly upset by some of these optics, because it seems like the Democrats have just walked into a trap that they've created for themselves. You say that they're going to be arrested when they return and compelled to show up for work, they can't stay here forever. They may want to. They may prefer D.C. to Texas, but their families are there, their jobs are there. When they get back, you said they're going to be arrested and forced to show up for work. Do you have any sense on the timeline there? Is there any way you can get them back to Austin sooner rather than later? What does the jurisdiction look like there? The way that it works under the Texas Constitution is uh, this is in the authority of the House, and earlier today, the Texas House of Representatives passed what they needed to pass, uh, which was the authority to go out and arrest the Democrats once they arrive back in Texas. The jurisdiction exists in the state of Texas, but not outside of the state of Texas, because these are Texas law enforcement agents. But uh, when the Democrats arrive back in Texas, uh, they will receive a nice escort to the Capitol where they will be compelled to stay uh, until the special session is completed. On that front, I saw some reports today, Governor, that they have denied the quorum, and this is their delay tactic. They're denying the quorum, the number of people needed to physically be present to do business. They've done that successfully in the House, the lower chamber, but perhaps not in the Senate. Not enough Democrats may have fled the state in the Senate. Is that right? And if that's true, if there's a quorum in the Senate, can there be legislative progress to sort of tee this thing up to just basically be waiting on the House and a few of these lawmakers to get arrested to get this thing onto your desk for signing? That is the case, and the Senate is making progress. And, and uh, e- even though the, the House does not have a quorum, that doesn't deny the Senate from having a quorum and doesn't deny the Senate the ability uh, to hear bills and to pass bills, and that's exactly what they're doing. And they will have all of these bills that I put on the special session call probably passed out before the end of this week. And so if uh, the Democrats return during the course of a special session, which lasts 30 days, uh, then the Texas House of Representatives will be able to pass this legislation very quickly. However, uh, what the Democrats are saying is that they will not return during the course of this called special session, uh, and that means that they will come back after the expiration of this. But the the minute after the current special session expires, I'll be issuing a a new call for a new special session, uh, making them subject to arrest as soon as they arrive back into Texas, regardless of when it is. So they can't wait this out, is what you're saying. They can wait for 30 days and then come back, but then, boom, new special session. They're in custody, potentially. You're going to make it happen one way or the other. Based on your authority given to you by the voters of Texas and majorities in the legislature, also given 
and created by the voters of Texas, I will point out. That is very interesting information. A lot of context here as this battle's playing out. A lot of misinformation and hysteria. Uh, but we're watching it very closely. Governor Greg Abbott of Texas holding down the fourth there while the Democrats are delinquent here in Washington, D.C. Governor, appreciate your time. Would love to have you back. Take care. God bless. Thanks, Governor. The Guy Benson Show continues with more right after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening to The Guy Benson Show. Well, the issue of voter ID has come up quite a lot in recent days because we've had full-blown freakouts over states trying to strengthen ID requirements, especially for non-in-person voting. And we've made all kinds of points about it, how it is common sense, how it is broadly supported. I mean, 70, 80 percent support. We told you recently about a Monmouth poll where the number, I believe, was roughly 80 percent of Americans support voter ID including to prove that you are who you say you are when you're filling out a ballot at home, right, a mail-in ballot. You would think this would be obvious and non-controversial. But for the left and Democrats, they treat it like voter suppression and this horrible racist thing. Although in that Monmouth poll, interestingly, voters of color were even more in favor of voter ID laws than white people in that poll. I think probably some of that has to do with white liberals projecting onto minorities all sorts of strange assumptions. And some of it's just like tribalism. And some of the wokest, angriest voters in America are white progressives. So because this has come up again and again, and we've seen it labeled Jim Crow and all the various forms of demagoguery, and it really does get exhausting... But with poll after poll coming out showing that they are just getting crushed in the messaging battle, we've mentioned a few times some Democrats seem to be just giving up. Like, fine, we're for voter ID. Sure, we've been calling it racist voter suppression for 20 years. Screaming at the top of our lungs whenever anything like voter ID is proposed. Playing the race card from the bottom of the deck as aggressively and repugnantly as possible. But now we're like, yeah, I guess we're for it. Because it's a 2080 issue in the wrong way for them, wrong direction. We played you the clip of Vice President Kamala Harris yesterday. And she was still trying to sort of cling on to this idea that, oh, no, voter ID laws, this is bad. It's really hard for people to get an ID and figure out how to vote. I think it's actually quite insulting. And while that was making the rounds, some people resurfaced a video that was put together a couple years ago, 2016, a guy called Ami Horowitz. He went around and interviewed white progressives and asked them about voter ID laws, and they were all talking about how racist it is and how hard it is for people of color to get IDs and how it's just not fair and all this stuff. So they went straight to the race card, of course, because that's what they're conditioned to do, following the lead of the Democratic Party and the activist class. So here's just a little montage of what we heard from white people in this video. Again, this was made circa 2016, cut 11. Do you have an opinion on voter ID laws? Uh, yeah, they're 
usually pretty racist and <laughs> they're bad. I think voter ID laws are a way to perpetuate racism. Would you say they're, would you go as far as say they're, they're, those laws are racist? For sure. Do you think it suppresses the uh, African-American vote? Definitely. Uh, because they're less likely to have state IDs. Minority voters are less likely to have the kinds of IDs that have been um, described or required. These type of people don't live in areas with easy access to DMVs or other places where they can get identification. You can always get IDs um, over the internet. Does that also make it difficult for, for black people in particular? Yeah, you have to have access to the internet. You have to be able to pay an internet service provider for certain fees. Do you think that's harder for black people to go online? Well, I feel like they don't have the knowledge of how, of like, how it works. A lot of people have smartphones, but you might not have data. For most of the communities, they don't really know what is out there just because they're not aware or like right. they're not informed. I also think there's a repression of like black voting with um, how they, how if you're a convicted felon, like you're not allowed to vote and everything. And when you look at swing states like Florida, that's a huge population of the, of the like African Americans. Oh boy. Okay. So they're throwing a lot of stuff at the camera there. And of course they're saying all of those things out of a deeply felt self-righteousness. Oh, like they're looking out paternalistically for these minority voters who don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the internet. They don't understand IDs. They don't understand the DMV. They don't understand where they can get an ID. They don't have these IDs. The one young lady at the end there wanted to talk about uh, convicted felons, separate issue, but she's like, hey, that's not fair to the African-Americans, you know? So those are some of the white progressives who I'm sure they're like, no, we are, we are anti-racists. We are anti-racists doing our part. So then the guy who made this video went to East Harlem to ask black people how they felt about what the white people were saying about their ability to get photo ID, for example. And shock of all shocks, I think some black people were slightly taken aback. Cut 12. Do you have ID normally? Do you carry ID around? Yes, I have state ID. Do you carry ID? Yes, I do. Do you know anybody, who, any black person doesn't carry ID? No. Everyone that I know has an ID. Why would they think we don't have ID? <laughs> That's a lie. Why would they say that? Do you have ID? Yes. Because I have my ID and my friends have their ID, so like, we know what we need to carry around. Everybody that I know have ID. Like, that's one of the things you need to walk around with New York with, ID. Do you know any black adult who does not have ID? No, I don't. Is it a weird thing to even say that? Yes, it is. What is this, some, some type of uh, candy camera? I like know, that? right? <laughs> that's the only thing I brought with me. Those are legit, yeah. legit IDs. I heard a lot also that uh, black people can't figure out how to get to the DMV. Really? That's that, what does that say to you? I know it's that. It's on 25th Street. Do you know where the ID, the, the DMV is around you? It's on 125th Street and 3rd Avenue, I believe. You know how to get there? Yeah. Do you have a problem getting there if you have to get there? No. <laughs> I love, is this candid camera? Now, look, there are some people probably in far-flung areas who might be a little harder to get ID, especially at a certain age. The solution there is get them an ID. Don't get rid of ID requirements based on these made-up ideas. I love just the shock. What do you mean they're saying we can't get IDs? I think we might need a follow-up video, 2021 edition, where this filmmaker goes into, like, rural Oklahoma and goes around to people. This would be in honor of Vice President Harris. Where they're asking a bunch of people who live in rural parts of the country, hey, do you know what a Xerox machine is? Have you ever seen or heard of a Kinko's? 
Does your cell phone... Do you know what a cell phone is? Do you know what a cell phone is? Does your cell phone have a camera on it? Like for photos? They talk very slowly. Because apparently Kamala Harris believes that these folks have absolutely no idea how to do any of this stuff. <laughs> that juxtaposition, that circulated again just in the last few days, back from 2016, I think underscores why the left will always lose the argument about voter ID. It's demeaning and insulting, as a matter of fact. And revealing, actually, what white progressives in this case think about a lot of people of color. Who then, when they're asked the question, they look like, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? Of course I have an ID. We'll see if we get any response from the vice president if they go around and ask people about copy machines, phones on cameras in rural America. Although I can already anticipate what her response might sound like. Jack Chitterelli is running for governor in New Jersey. He joins me next on The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. Back on the program halfway through the show today. Glad to have you along. I'm Guy Benson. Joining me now is Jack Chitterelli. He is the Republican nominee for governor in the great state of New Jersey, my home state. Jack, it's great to have you here. Hey, Guy. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So your race is a big one. It's not getting quite as much attention nationally, I would say, as the Virginia gubernatorial race. Both Virginia and New Jersey have this off-year election cycle. But being from New Jersey and having parents who finally got out of New Jersey because they couldn't take it anymore in terms of taxation and all of it, uh, this is one that means a lot to me. And I think it also does have national implications because you're going to be trying to prosecute a case against Governor Murphy, who's gotten a fair amount of ink, good and bad, over his handling of a number of issues, including coronavirus. So if you would, just for the national audience, introduce yourself. What's your background? Why are you running? And then we'll get to your opponent. I'm Jack Chitterelli, a lifelong New Jerseyan. I've been an employer here in New Jersey with two very successful Main Street businesses. I'm an MBA CPA. Uh, I've served at every level of government, uh, municipal, county, and state level, always term limiting myself. Um, I'm running because the state we love is broken. And while I realize the race has national implications, my focus really is just on fixing our broken state. So as the motto for the campaign goes, let's fix New Jersey. The incumbent is Governor Phil Murphy. And, you know, some of the real struggles that New Jersey has seen over many years, and you're very familiar with all of them, in some ways they've gotten worse over the last four years. You had Governor Christie, who's a friend of ours, friend of the show, eight years of Republican governance, but, of course, always that Democratic legislature, and they would tangle. Now you have, as is recently, occasionally the case, full Democratic control of the state of New Jersey. What is your case against not just Phil Murphy specifically, but unified Democratic control of the state of New Jersey? A guy, when you ask New Jerseyans over and over again what their number one issue is post-pandemic, the answer is taxes, taxes, and taxes. Yep. And it's because we have the highest property taxes in the nation. We have the highest personal taxes in the nation. 
We now have the highest business tax in the nation. We've had significant gas tax increases. And on top of that, Phil Murphy increased tolls. He borrowed four and a half billion dollars he didn't need to that we'll all be paying the interest of principal on over the next 15 years. And in addition to that, since Joe Biden's become president, he hasn't lobbied to bring back the SALT deduction, which is something New Jerseyans overwhelmingly want. So the highest tax burden in the country has only gotten heavier under Phil Murphy. That's the number one issue. And my dad will joke to anyone who will listen. They retired to Massachusetts. He says, if you're escaping to Massachusetts for better taxes, that is not a great sign about wherever you're coming from. And, of course, it was New Jersey. And, look, there's a lot to love about the state of New Jersey. I think it gets a bad rap. I think people have a certain image of New Jersey in their mind from pop culture. I think a lot of that is unfair. And in some ways, it's our little secret. Like, the haters can hate. It's actually a great place in a lot of ways. But Trenton and the policies that emanate from Trenton are not one of the highlights. I think it's, it's fair to say. New Jerseyans love New Jersey, but they also realize it's broken. And that's why in a recent poll, when New Jerseyans were asked, two-thirds say they're looking to leave as soon as possible. That's not the state I want to be governor, on, governor of, and I'm telling you that we can fix that. But you're exactly right, Guy. In a recent national CPA journal, New Jersey had the highest tax burden in the country across the lifetime of its citizens. Massachusetts was 49th but $100,000 better than New Jersey. And for the first time ever, from a tax standpoint, it's now cheaper to live in New York than New Jersey. We've got to be regionally competitive. We do that with major reforms to our tax code, which is what this MBA CPA is all about. So what's the formula for you to actually have a chance to win? Because I know there's probably a lot of people listening across the country saying, all right, this guy, Jack, seems like a pretty good guy. He seems like he'd certainly be better for the state of New Jersey. We'd like to see, you know, Republicans at least hold the line in that state. But it's such a blue state. And it goes so overwhelmingly, especially at the national level for Democrats. Is this fool's gold? And of course, you can think back, as I referenced to Governor Christie, that wasn't ancient history. That was 09 and 13. He won those two races. But in order to win as a Republican statewide in New Jersey, you really have to appeal to not only to your base and get basically every single Republican voter who exists in the state, you've got to get a good chunk of independence, majority, and you have to attract some Democrats over to your side as well just to make the math work. How do you see that equation working for you? And how are you going to try to appeal to some people who may not be enamored of the Republican brand right now, at least from a national perspective, and focus it on the actual issues of New Jersey? How are you going to go about accomplishing that? Guy, let me be clear. I'm not on a fool's errand here. Uh, I'm in it to win it, and there is a pathway to victory. And I think what helps people better understand that is while we are blue when it comes to federal elections, we are a purple state that tints red when it comes to statewide elections. Over the last four decades, Republicans have won six of the last 10 gubernatorial races in New Jersey. And over that same four-decade span, every time a Democrat took the White House, New Jersey turned around the very next year and elected a Republican governor. And every one of our governors, Republican governors over the last four decades, been a two-termer. One other very compelling fact, Guy, Phil Murphy lost his midterms. Two years ago, Phil Murphy lost his midterms. Republicans did something we hadn't done in 28 years. We picked up seats in the state legislature. So there's something very different about gubernatorial elections here in New Jersey. We're purple with a tin of red. All I need to do is get up and down this state, as I've been doing for the past year and a half, with the right kind of energy, the right kind of message, 
And I'm confident that people are going to pull the lever for Jack Cittarelli and Republicans this November. Okay, so there's two components there as well. One is public opinion and how you can start to chip away and prove that it's a competitive race and a winnable race. And the other component of it is money, because this is another thing that people may not think about when they think about New Jersey politics. But the two major media markets in New Jersey are New York City and Philly. I mean, these are huge massively expensive media markets to even be competitive. Now, I mean, Christie got totally crushed in terms of the numbers, dollar-wise, by John Corzine, for example, right? So you can win even if you're not winning the money battle, but how do you plan to stay competitive on the cash front? And then what can you tell us about the polling you've seen, whether it's public polling or your internal polling? Can you make the case at this early stage, although it's, you know, it's now July, the elections in November, that you feel like there is a real viable path to victory for yourself. Guy, Chris Christie was outspent by John Corzine, rather, back in 2009, four to one. And the reason I bring that up is for the very reason that uh, you were mentioning. Uh, I think what you were intimating is that, yes, candidates matter and message matters almost more than money. Uh, We're going to have more than enough. And know this, I raised more money in my primary than any Republican gubernatorial candidate in history and... Most importantly, we matched Phil Murphy dollar for dollar. That demonstrates the kind of energy my campaign is generating up and down the state. And we're off to a fantastic start here in the general election. We're going to raise the maximum allowed, which is the $15 million. And I anticipate, because this race is close, I anticipate national organizations like the Republican National Committee and the Republican Governors Association to weigh in with personnel and financial resources as well. We're right where we need to be. I'm not suggesting this is easy, Uh, but anyone that knows me, I've won seven elections in this state, two at the municipal level, two at the county level, and three in the state legislature, all in races where Democrats outnumber Republicans. I know how to win these races, and we'll have the financial wherewithal to get it done. You say it's a close race. What does that look like? What it means is there's a pathway to victory, but I equate it to a baseball season. You compete in April, May, June, July, August, September. You win the World Series in October, in the first week of November. We are right where we need to be. In fact, today we are in the polls where we didn't think we'd be until September. You just grind it out each and every day. That's what this campaign does. And I'm telling you, we're going to win this election. I want to ask you about one more issue. We've talked about taxes. I mean, 50 out of 50, it speaks for itself. What about education? I feel like education has become such a hot-button issue not just in Virginia, not just in New Jersey, but around the country with school closures, teachers unions, some of this crazy stuff that's being taught in some schools uh, with you know kids being racialized and indoctrinated from very early ages. There are a lot of parents, you know, suburban, exurban parents who have been drifting away from Republicans for years who are now maybe taking a second look because they want their schools open. They're mad about what happened last year. They want their kids to be taught reading and writing and math and not all this sort of, you know, woke nonsense. How much is education playing into your campaign? Because I know the teachers unions are extremely powerful and aligned with the Democrats. I know that's true in a lot of places. It is especially true in the state of New Jersey. The teachers union is powerful. And listen, they're always with the Democrat, but let's not forget, Republicans have won six of the last ten elections. So the NJEA union is not the be-all, end-all to winning the election. And as you know, Guy, in politics, that pendulum swings, particularly particularly when one side has been 
and there's been overreach in their policies. And we've seen that with New Jersey's educational system. I will tell you that parents throughout the state, Republican, Democrat, male, female, black and white, are very concerned about the changes that we made to our public school curriculum. And I'm telling you, under Governor Cedarelli, we're going to get back to basics. Let's get back to reading, writing, math and history. We're not going to be teaching gender ID and sexual orientation in kindergarten. We're going to roll back this new sex education curriculum, which is too much, too soon for our students. And we're not going to be teaching our students that, New Jer- that America is a racist country. Okay, let's teach our history. But we don't need to be teaching our, our students that, New Jer- that uh, the country is a racist country. So you'll see the kind of education that New Jersey desire most from Governor Cedarelli. Governor Murphy, meanwhile, where is he on this stuff? Well, he's been pretty silent on this, particularly when pressed on critical race theory. But the other thing we're going to talk an awful lot about, Guy, in addition to taxes and education, is his mishandling of the pandemic. His decisions have killed seniors and veterans in our nursing homes, closed one out of three small businesses on Main Street, mom-and-pop shops that were in families for decades, 50% of which owned by females and minorities. And his lack of leadership kept our children out of school. I've been advocating since last September that our youngest children, elementary school students, and special needs students need to be back in the classroom. Yep. But because of his very cozy and conflicted relationship with the teachers union, he didn't want to press on that. And parents are upset about it throughout the state. Yeah, there's a lot of learning loss, a lot of other ramifications for those kids. And someone's got to own that. Sounds like you're going to be making the case that it's Governor Murphy and his Democratic friends. And there's a big race in New Jersey coming up in November. We are getting close to the red zone. Not quite there yet. We'll be watching it closely. Jack Cittarelli, the GOP nominee for governor up there in the Garden State. Jack, appreciate your time, and let's check in again soon. Looking forward to it, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday, we opened the program talking about the upheaval in Cuba with people demanding their freedom, demanding an end to an incompetent, corrupt, totalitarian regime the communist Castro regime, and all their henchmen. And unfortunately, we're starting to see some images and some videos of people being abducted by government agents, beaten. There are reports about murders, government murders. There was one individual, a journalist, who was arrested or detained while on live television on an international channel. We've seen other journalists being detained. This is what communist regimes do when they're threatened. They lash out and they crack down. And we can only rely on dribs and drabs emerging from that nation. Senator Marco Rubio, whose family escaped Cuba, he's a Republican from Florida, of course. We put a message into him, a request to get him on perhaps later in the week. But he is fired up about this for all the obvious reasons. This is personal to him. It's principle as well, but it's personal. And he gave a really impassioned floor speech in the U.S. Senate yesterday evening. I want to play some of it for you, because Cuba may not be at the very top of your issue list. It's not for me either, although freedom is. Defeating communism is, of course. Resisting despotism, 
on the left or the right, but, you know, right 90 miles off our shore, you have this despotic communist regime that continues to hurt its people. And so when those people try to cry out and stand up for themselves, I think it's incumbent on us to pay attention and to listen and dial in and do what we can at least to support them. And by the way, if that means the U.S. government using technology and satellites to help them keep their Internet when the regime shuts it down to try to make it harder to organize, harder to get information out to the rest of the world, I think the U.S. government should absolutely look at that. And I hope the Biden administration would be open-minded enough to recognize some of the rapprochement and policy thaw that was sought by the Obama administration. I hope they don't cling to that. They don't cling to those efforts and those failures, frankly, in light of what the regime is doing. I hope they can see this with clear eyes and that they can be prodded by people in both parties to do so. So here's part of what Rubio had to say. Let's start with cut 22. Socialism and Marxism has done in Cuba what it has done everywhere in the world that it's been tried. It has failed. It has failed. They gave up their freedom or they were told, give up your freedom in exchange for a, a world-class health care system. It's not a world-class health care system. In fact, it's a, it's a health care system that does not even have the ability to deal with COVID at its very basic level. That says, give up your freedom for economic security. What economic security? People are hungry. Homes are crumbling. There is no economy. There is no real economy in Cuba. Give up your freedom and you'll have an education, free education for everybody. That education... Number one, you're a doctor. You can drive a taxi cab in Cuba and make more money. Or number two, you get sent, forced to go overseas and work basically on slave wages. No pay, barely any pay at all. It's basically human trafficking. As our own Department of State found when it looked at the Cuban doctor's program and how it's been abused. He goes on talking about the scapegoats because the regimes of this sort, of this ilk, always have scapegoats. Their enemies, right, to try to paper over and deflect away from their own abject failures based on policies that never work. Cut 23. And so what's happened in Cuba is socialism has failed. It has to repress the people who complain about it. You don't get your freedom back. And like socialists always do, they have to find someone to blame. And who do they blame? Number one, they blame anybody in the country that doesn't agree with them. You're immediately a counter-revolutionary. You're immediately a pawn of the imperialists. And then, of course, they always blame the United States. Which some leftists here in America are doing as well, blaming this stuff on our embargo. And Rubio had another portion of his speech where he said, of course, these failures are not about an American embargo. And he ran through why. It's the regime's fault. They are the problem, and more people in Cuba are feeling empowered, at least for the moment, to very bravely speak out. And on that front, Rubio closed with this, cut 25. All this ideology, all this stuff they talk about, all these lies of the regime work out really well for them. People don't believe it anymore, and they're not afraid anymore. Meanwhile, their lives are ruined. Young people in Cuba, artists in Cuba, who realize that the only country on this planet where Cubans are not successful is Cuba, and they're tired of it, and we should stand with them. Yep, amen. Cuba Libre. Another hour on The Guy Benson Show. Our final hour coming up. Bill Hammer will be here. You don't want to miss it. It's straight ahead. 
It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. It is underway. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is there each and every day. It is free. It is on demand. We recommend subscribing. You can also get that at FoxNewsPodcast.com or anywhere you download your free podcasts. GuyBensonShow.com, though, is the one-stop shop. And happy hour, as always, brought to you by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. Refreshing, delicious Alcoholics, so 21 plus only, please. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They are expanding all across the country. You can plug in your address or your zip code and see where it's sold near you. And if it's not near you yet, it'll be there soon probably. But in the meantime, you can order online. TheLongDrink.com. With me now, Bill Hemmer, co-anchor of America's Newsroom. You can watch it every weekday from 9 to 11 a.m. on Fox News Channel. You can also check out his podcast, Hammer time. Bill, it is great to have you back. Hey, Guy. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And I have to ask you, because we always talk about, throughout the pandemic, how New York is looking, how New York is feeling. I'm actually heading up to New York after the show this evening. I get in tonight. I'll be there for about a week. I got some TV duties, some gut fell, little Kennedy. And I'm just curious how you're feeling about the city at the moment. When was the last time you were here, Guy? I was there briefly, gosh, maybe a, maybe a month ago, two months ago. Okay. Okay, here's what I say. You said you're going to be here a week, which I assume means you'll be here over the weekend. I don't know if you're staying in the city over the weekend. If you yes. are and you're working, that's going to be the slimmest days. But I think you're going to see remarkable improvement. I give you my word on that. I was a bear on Manhattan early in the month of May. And, Guy, as I said the last time I was with you, I'm bullish on New York. Yes, and you're still feeling that way because, you know, it can go sort of up and down. I wonder, and and this is sort of a political question, and you don't have to tip your hand politically speaking, but just in terms of the bullishness, and as you talk to other New Yorkers, is the result, setting aside some of the logistical snafus and embarrassments of the vote count, is the result of that mayoral contest on the Democratic side where sort of, in my view at least, the least crazy, least left-wing, you know, pro-law enforcement guy actually prevailed. Are there people who have not been thrilled with the de Blasio era looking to Eric Adams and saying, okay, if that guy ends up winning the general, it has to be an arrow pointed upward? How much does that play I, in this? I think that's, that is the overriding feeling. I, but we also must state that there's six or seven Democrats, every Republican who votes in the boroughs of New York. So right. the point is, if you win the Democratic primary, you're pretty much on your way, which makes me wonder, how bad was it here for Giuliani to be elected? I mean, how upside down was this town for a Republican to win? Well, and really so bad. He, yeah, really bad. But I, I think the consensus is that Adams was 
um, the reasonable choice for uh, law and order, and that's what he ran on. I tell you what, there's some questions about the DA right now. I think mm. I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about that. Um, he seems to be much more in line with the uh, the DA out of L.A. County, uh, or sorry, the city of Los Angeles, than um, than what we have had here. So just just watch watch those factors. Well, and that's what I want to drill down on just a little bit because you're bullish on New York. It's coming out of COVID. Things are basically open again, so the city's coming a bit back to life. I know a lot of the folks with money often get out of the city, especially on weekends during the summer because it's hot. It can be dreary. They all head out to the Hamptons, wherever they're going to go. But nevertheless, it's still a more vibrant New York City. However, the crime, the violent crime, seems like at the end of every weekend, the stats come out and... It's eye-opening, and Bill, it's not just in certain areas or neighborhoods where, sadly, it doesn't necessarily come and surprise you. I mean, how many people have been shot in Times Square in the last few months? There have been a few Times Square shootings. I mean, that that is something that probably makes certainly the folks who are worried about tourism worry more, right? Because you you don't want to see those headlines ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're and we're getting them, and I think they're going to be here for a bit. To be honest with you, um, my my, if you got into the neighborhoods, you'd feel you feel pretty normal here now. I'm talking East Village, West Village, Upper East, Upper West. If you're staying in a hotel in Midtown Manhattan, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, just be prepared for a ghost town because there there is not a ton of tourists who have come back already. And you know the business community is not filling up these buildings just yet. So they, it can be pretty sparse. Last night at 6.30, I was walking through West Village. So I'm downtown across 7th Avenue. Guy, there was, there was no traffic. There were no cars. And I, I think that... Um, I ran into this guy. I'll just give you this little anecdote. He works on my street. He's a shrink, okay? He's a psychiatrist. I said, Doc, good to see you. How's business? He was like, through the roof. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> things are calming down. I thought things were supposed to be getting better. He says, no, I'm dealing with people who have to reenter society now. So that means they've got to get dressed. They've got to go to work. They've got to face people. They can't hide in their apartment like they have been for the last 16 or 17 months and just live on the phone or live on Zoom. And that's what he's dealing with in his practice. Yeah, I mean, for me, I couldn't wait to get back to normal and travel and see people and do all the things. But there's another whole slew of personality types who weren't terribly opposed to all the remote stuff and and sort of antisocial requirements and having to re-socialize into a resumption of normalcy probably tough for some people. And I mean, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't resume. We have to. Uh, but I, I think there's some room for empathy there, certainly. Bill, have you been traveling I would just at all? Add one thing. I just add one thing on that. I would just consider this as we go through it. I, I was with a guy last weekend, and he manages a lot of people in his business. He's in finance. And he said, listen, I am used to giving orders, but I've had to learn how to get orders, which led me to say, I wonder how much the employee will be able to dictate and for how long. And I think that's going to be a changing dynamic as we go mm-hmm. uh, later into this year. Yeah, it may not be exactly the same as it always was. I don't think we're going 100% back to that ever, but I think we're going to get back to a lot of it, I think is my point at least. And everyone's going to be doing it sort of at their own pace, 
but I've been raring to go. I'm, I'm excited. The fact that I'm on business trips Good. again, I'm like, yes, <laughs> I, yeah. I'm ready for this. I love my house. I love my neighborhood, <laughs> but I, I like a little bit of uh, dynamism in my life and being on the go. And, and speaking of travel, I know that you do a fair amount of traveling. Have you been doing any trips or vacations recently? How's the traveling thing going for you? Because I got to tell you, Bill, I looked at those photos yesterday of the Democrats fleeing out of Texas, uh-huh. and they're all in these, these private chartered jets, and they're all smiling without their masks on on the plane. I'm like, you know, if I did that, I could be thrown off a flight and maybe even arrested. All the little people can't do that. And yet, I mean, it, and optically, and I made this point earlier in the show, I think it was just absurd because I would love to fly as a fully inoculated, vaccinated person. I'd love to fly without a mask on. I guess there are certain people with certain perks who feel like they don't have to follow the rules that the rest of us do. But that's just sort of a sidebar on my part. Have you felt like travel is starting to get back into at least some semblance of normal? Yeah, I would agree with that, yes. And I thought what was interesting is I, I, the Hemmer family makes a, an annual pilgrimage to the Carolina shore. It's called the Hemmer Hodge. Well, that's what I call it. And there's <laughs> like that. 28 of us in four different homes. And we did that about two is it weeks North ago. or South Carolina? Uh, yeah, North Carolina. That's right. I love the Carolina shore guy. I just think, you know, you, you get four tides a day and it's beautiful. And when the tide goes out, you pick up an extra 300 yards of flat packed sand and it's just an open playground. I love it. Um, I thought the airports were more crowded than I expected, but not overly so. What I thought was interesting, this has never happened to me in my life, working life or personal life. I've never made a car reservation where the company called me four days before the reservation started. And they were doing that to make sure that I was going to show yep. because they had, there had been a shortage, but uh, it, well, the it prices, all worked out. The prices are expensive. Out. They, it was a little more expensive than I expected by maybe a hundred bucks over seven or eight days. So whatever, um, you know, you take some here and you take some there. What I thought was very interesting is that we go to a little spit of an island. It's three miles long and half a mile wide. Been going there since 1977. Every house was occupied. And a good number of those homes that used to be rental only because people used it to generate income, uh, the rental signs have been removed, and people are living there full-time now more than they ever have before. Mm-hmm. And as soon as a home came out of the market, a lot of times, you know, homes, would sit, it was kind of an, it's, it's an old-school island, kind of takes you back in time. Uh, it's, it's not real progressive is not the right word, but that's what I'm going to use right now. It's not fast-paced. It, yeah, it's it, it kind of like it enjoyed the laid-back attitude. It, it enjoyed being 20 or 30 years behind everybody else. But now, guy, homes used to sit there for months, if not a year, and now they get snapped up in a matter of 14 days. And I, I just thought that was a marked difference from what I've experienced, and I've been going there 30 years, I'd say. Last question, baseball-related. We're both baseball fans. I am not watching the All-Star game tonight because I'm just been out of shape about how it all got politicized and taken out of Atlanta. So I'm just not doing it. Also, my team, the Yankees, have been hot garbage this year. So it's sort of even easier for me to not watch a ton of Major League Baseball this particular season. But I saw some quotes today. Apparently, the commissioner, Manfred, is saying that looking forward, they might get rid of this. 10th inning, extra inning, you know, runner on second base rule and get rid of the seven inning double headers. And as more of a traditionalist, oh. I have to say that if that's true, I'm looking forward to the return of Major League Baseball. Whoa. Well, you like these moves? 
I would like to see it go back. I do not like I do not like the runner on second base to start the extra innings. I feel oh. like that's a gimmick. Oh. I like to see a full nine inning game. Just call me crazy, but I feel like that's it's major league baseball. I feel like they should play full games. This isn't like, you know, high single A somewhere. Uh, I, but I, 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 I strongly agree with you. I didn't know. I, I, I'm hearing this for the first time now. I hope they don't do that. I will tell you that I'm paying attention to baseball now in a way that I have not for some time because my Cincinnati Reds are only four games back of the Brewers, <laughs> and they, they, they won like 11 of their last 12, so I'm jacked up about that. I will watch the All-Star game for one reason. I, I have not been able to see this player from Japan. He's something. Yeah, I, I, I want to see how he does on the mound and how he does at the plate. I imagine he'll pitch an inning and he'll get one at bat, and I, I'd like to see that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, he's he's earned all that attention. He's playing on a team that isn't any good, and yet he's still excelling. I mean, just really impressive player. And look, the game's on Fox, so it's within the family, and I don't begrudge anyone watching it. I'm just there's a bad taste in my mouth from Major League Baseball, and I'm just sort of stepping back a little I, bit this season. Yeah. But if, if they resume sort of the, the traditional rules next year, as the commissioner hinted, commissioner saying looks like they may go back to the nine innings for doubleheaders and get rid of the gimmick, it's extra innings or whatever, that would be, for the first time in a while, a step in the right direction for Major League Baseball, from my perspective. But, I love uh, it. I, I tell you what, Guy, I'll give you an interviewee if you want to hear about this now. If you w- really want to dive into this topic about how Major League Baseball stepped into Atlanta and took it away and went to Colorado, talk to Vivek Ramaswamy. Oh, terrific. I was reading uh, a piece right. about him in his the journal. His book is going to be out in August. It's called Woke, Inc. These are all of his own ideas based on what he's learned. Through the, he's 35, 36 years old, grew up in southwest Ohio, Cincinnati. It's, these are his ideas about how he interprets why yep. corporate America makes the decisions that they make. Fascinating stuff. He's a fascinating guy, and I know the book's coming out. I read that interview with him in the journal. Another guy that I know had recommended that I get in touch. So that's, In fact, let's make a note of that, producer team, we should get Vivek on the show because I think that he's smart and woke corporate stuff I think will remain an issue, unfortunately, in the near term at least and we cover it a lot here on the Guy Benson Show. Bill Hemmer, we watch every morning 9 to 11 a.m. America's Newsroom on Fox News Channel. Also, Hemmer Time is the podcast foxnewspodcast.com Bill, appreciate it. Maybe I'll see you up in New York. You got it, brother. I'll see you in New York when you get here. Peace. Yes, sir. Happy hour continues next. Guy Benson will be right back. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Back here on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. So a friend of mine, Carolyn, in Chicago, sent me a note today, and she texted both her husband, Mitch, and myself. Because she knows that Mitch and I are big fans of Coke Zero. It's technically Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. They rebranded it a while back. They changed the name. They changed the formula from just Coke Zero to Coke Zero Sugar. I guess for purposes of clarity or whatever. And they said that they're going to improve the formula, make it taste more like real Coke, even with the zero calories and zero sugar. And I was pretty worked up about it when they made the change at the time at least, and then I tried the new version and I calmed down because the new version was, in fact, better, right? So I will give them that and I will admit that point. I will concede the point because if you listen to this show regularly, you know Coke Zero is my go-to soft drink. 
I really don't drink any other soda. Like, I'll do, like, you know, Spindrift, which is sparkling water with a little bit of lemon in it. But in terms of, like, a soda product, it's basically Coke Zero or Bust. The occasional ginger ale, maybe. But I have a Coke Zero every day. So Carolyn sends us the text. They are changing Coke Zero again. They're changing it again. And at first, the headline from CNN Money made it seem like they're just changing the can. Said it's getting a, a makeover, and they showed the old can versus the new can. And the new can looks pretty cool, but I think it needs more black. Black is the signifying color of Coke Zero in my mind. But no, it is worse than that. It is not just an outward superficial makeover. They are changing the formula, the recipe, again. So here's that story. If you're a big fan of Coke Zero Sugar, you might want to brace yourself. The recipe for your beloved drink is changing. Coca-Cola is saying today it is tweaking the beverage in an effort to make the drink taste more like regular Coke. The can will also look different, okay? So they quote one of these Coke officials. In fact, it's the CEO. Despite its enormous success, Coke Zero Sugar still represents a relatively small percentage of the overall brand. So the improved recipe, they say, will bring the taste even closer to iconic Coca-Cola, so the classic. He said this was, quote, influenced by consumer insight and our focus on constant improvement. It's rolling out this month and will hit the United States shelves soon. Now, in international markets, it's already hitting, and some people are not happy about it. So they're quoting some tweets. What have you done to my favorite drink, Coke Zero Sugar? The new recipe is shocking. I won't be buying another can until you fix your mistake and bring back the old flavor. Another person writing, the new taste is so bad. So this has me extremely worried. Because yes, perhaps I'm slightly addicted to the product. But they actually improved it last time. Stop messing with it. You'd think they would have learned their lesson with new Coke. Remember that way back in the day? Total failure. Don't do it. So I had some chance that I was using on social media, like activist chants last time they were tweaking the formula. Hey, hey, ho, ho, hands off our Coke Zero. Or what do we want? The same Coke Zero formula. When do we want it? Now. I might have to bring this back. My inner activist might have to bloom. Fly down to Atlanta and pick it. I'll do the show from our affiliate down there. Keep Coke Zero. Leave Coke Zero alone. I'm begging you. I'm going to start hoarding. I'm going to start hoarding. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. GuyBensonShow.com We are back. It's the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, we spoke for the first time on this show with the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, a Republican. A lot going on in his state. Some of the Democrats in the legislature have fled here to D.C. to try to avoid a vote. We talked to the governor all about it. Here's part of that conversation. There are so many members of the Texas legislature here in D.C. It's like they got a little outpost that they've set up here in the nation's capital as opposed to the Texas capital of Austin. They have fled the jurisdiction. They chartered some planes, it looked like, got a bunch of Miller Lite, no masks on the flight, which is pretty great for them, not so great for the rest of us who like to travel. <laughs> We're not allowed to do that, but they're here, and they're not there. Give us the background of why this is happening, and this is their second 
sort of flee move to try to prevent this election law, right? Uh, sure. Listen, um, uh, have you ever heard of Babylon Bee? Of course. Big fan. So they, they, they just printed an article talking about how genius it was uh, that the governor of Texas was able to get all the Democrats to leave the state. <laughs> and so this could be a, a master plan uh, that other states are trying to copy. But, but uh, more seriously, this is an abdication of duty by people who are elected to go to the Capitol in Austin, Texas, to get a job done. Worse than that, uh, they're in Washington, D.C., showing nothing but hypocrisy, because the one thing they are seeking to, to accomplish in Washington, D.C., uh, is to try to compel Democrats in Washington to end the filibuster. So the strategy they're using to get Democrats in Washington to end the filibuster is for Democrats in Texas to use the filibuster in Austin, Texas. That that is the epitome of hypocrisy by the Democrats. Another thing I'd like to point out, you did talk about the Miller Lite, for those who don't know what what guy's talking about it, and that is that uh, the the Democrats, when they fled the state of Texas, uh, they had uh, like a case of Miller Lite with them. What did they have to use to, to buy that Miller Lite? And it required an ID, just like an ID that is required to vote, uh, which is one thing they're protesting about, despite the fact that Texas has, for years now, uh, had a voter ID requirement. Let's, let's go back to the beginning, and that is that the Democrats, uh, they are raising an uproar about an issue that really is not in existence. They're, they're claiming that uh, Texas Republicans are trying to pass a law that deny them the right to vote, which is the most absurd thing I've ever heard of. What Texas is actually doing, we are increasing the number of hours to vote, not decreasing. Texas has 12 days of early voting, and we are increasing the hours available to vote during those early voting days. I might point out, Guy, that uh, if you look at the early voting days Texas has, it's far more than what exists in Joe Biden's home state of Delaware, which is exactly zero days of early voting. So if anybody wants to talk about voter suppression, they should talk about what's going on in Delaware not in the Lone Star State. Well, speaking of the president, he just gave a speech today, and he was referring to a whole host of issues, but uh, within that basket of issues are some of these state-level bills and laws that are being passed, including yours in Texas, and he called this a 21st century Jim Crow assault on democracy. What's your reaction to that from the president? Well, uh, remember something, and this is the same president who called me a Neanderthal when I opened up Texas 100% eliminating the mask mandate. And all that happened after I did that so-called Neanderthal action uh, was to have the number of cases and hospitalizations and COVID positivity rate all decline and Texas improved dramatically after that. So uh, his calling names uh, is, is absolutely absurd for one, but for another, anybody who went through Jim Crow would be angry that the president of the United States equivocating what is going on in Texas with Jim Crow laws, uh, because that is the most offensive thing ever. Let's go back to what I said. Texas is increasing, not decreasing, the number of hours to vote. If you want to say Jim Crow laws exist anywhere, again, you should say that it exists in Delaware, where you have zero early uh, voting days or hours. But more than that, uh, Joe Biden himself knows full well about the election fraud that takes place in the state of Texas because of the Obama-Biden administration. Two quick examples. One is that Barack Obama appointed a federal district judge in Corpus Christi, Texas, that issued a ruling about voting in the state of Texas where that Obama-appointed judge wrote that voter fraud occurs, quote, in abundance 
as it concerns absentee balloting. Absentee balloting is exactly what we're trying to address in the state of Texas. And the Barack Obama judge says it occurs in abundance in the state of Texas. On top of that, the Obama-Biden administration, uh, they sent a team of FBI agents as well as a U.S. attorney to South Texas to uh, investigate and to arrest and to prosecute a voter fraud scheme where cocaine was being used to buy votes in South Texas. Joe Biden knows full well voter fraud is real in the state of Texas. It is right to uh, have Texas address voter fraud, especially as it occurs uh, in the mail-in ballot, uh, absentee ballot situation. And even Democrats on the Texas House floor in Texas agreed that we can achieve greater voter integrity by addressing absentee mail-in ballots in Texas. So we have this stunt from these lawmakers who have left your state on their chartered flights and uh, they're now here in D.C. They're meeting with the vice president, apparently. They're meeting with Senator Schumer. I'm sure this is delightful to many progressives around the country. The left-wingers on Twitter seem to love it, but I kind of feel like the people of Texas might take a slightly different view. I can't imagine that you're terribly upset by some of these optics, because it seems like the Democrats have just walked into a trap that they've created for themselves. You say that they're going to be arrested when they return and compelled to show up for work, they can't stay here forever. They may want to. They may prefer D.C. to Texas, but their families are there. Their jobs are there. When they get back, you said they're going to be arrested and forced to show up for work. Do you have any sense on the timeline there? Is there any way you can get them back to Austin sooner rather than later? What does the jurisdiction look like there? That full chat, my inaugural interview with the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, here on The Guy Benson Show, available for free at GuyBensonShow.com or on the free podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, we've got a food-related topic that I saw, and I said, well, this will be a good one, and might actually spark some pretty intense debate here on the team. We'll explain and weigh in next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on the Guy Benson Show. So I saw this on Twitter, and I immediately thought of our ridiculous homestretch segments, particularly involving Max, our technical producer. And it's a perfect day to bring this up with him because... Well, the home stretches are a little different this week because producer Christine, i.e. Cookie, is on vacation. She's on vacation this whole week and, in fact, bleeding into next week because she's turning the big 4-0, which is pretty exciting. She might make an occasional phone appearance on the home stretch in the coming days because I hear it's a little rainy up where she's on vacation, which is not ideal. But, I mean, she calls us her best friends. She thinks that she'd want to check in and shoot the breeze with us, even if it's just 10 or 15 minutes on her vacation a couple times. I mean, she volunteered this. I'm not offering her up. I'm not saying, hey, let's call Christine and interrupt her vacation. Before she left, she's like, hey, I want to do this. So, I mean, by all means, who are we to say no? I mean, that is just some hashtag content at our fingertips. But not today. Today we're going to keep it just the boys, the gentlemen, myself, Max, Wyatt. So I saw this uh, a tweet, and there was a series of photographs, four photographs. And 
these happen from time to time. They go viral on social. People talk about them and argue. We've done similar things here. But this one's very simple and straightforward. There are four food products, let's call them, four foods, one of which you would have to eliminate for the rest of your life. So you get to keep three. The other one is gone, completely banished from your diet. You make the call. So the four foods are as follows. Bacon, tacos, donuts, sushi. Okay. Now, some people interpret this as saying, like, well, one of these things has to be eliminated from the planet. No, we're not eradicating bacon or something from the planet. This is a choice that each person would make saying, okay, for whatever reason, you have to cut out one of these things forever. Bacon, tacos, donuts, sushi. So for me, someone sent it to me, and I said, well, this is easy. It's not even close. It's donuts. You get rid of donuts. I'm not a donuts guy, which probably doesn't surprise you because I also hate waffles and French toast and pancakes and that kind of stuff. It's like sugary bread products. I like certain cakes, I guess, certain pies, chocolate chip cookies, but overall baked goods, it's just not up there. I could never eat another donut in my entire life and be happy. So donuts, you just cross that out with a red pen in my book, easy. Bacon, I like bacon. I want bacon. Tacos, delicious, especially like a really good fresh fish taco. Oh, yeah. Or maybe some carne asada. Mm. And then sushi, really good fresh Sushi might be my favorite meal, period. I've said that before. So there's no way I'm getting rid of sushi. Sushi is last on this depth chart. Like, sushi is protected. Donuts, gone. Now, Quiet Wyatt works part-time, especially in the high season, at an apple orchard, where if I'm not mistaken, Wyatt... Your, your job is to make donuts. So do you love donuts, or do you sort of be happy to never eat another one even if you're making them? A guy, of course I love donuts. They're like the, one of the best desserts. So you're telling me that you would not eliminate donuts out of these four? Yeah. When I saw these four, I said immediately it would be sushi. And it's maybe because I've never had it before, and I know what, I know what you were going to say. I know you're going to say <sighs> I should try it before I make them, but – to me, raw fish is just disgusting. The idea, the concept, it is no. just, ugh. I, I it's can't so even... good. And there are there are also cooked varieties. There are certain rolls with only cooked seafood or other options. Like It doesn't have to be like pure raw fish. I still think you should try it. It is my absolute favorite. But I'm not surprised that you're answering sushi. Like I, I anticipated very easily that you would say sushi, that I would say donuts. I don't know what Christine would do, but I am most curious to know Max's answer to this one. I would have to agree with you, Guy. Donuts. Put a yes. big red X through that. Yes. Although, yes. Uh, like, like, I do enjoy bacon. I have more to say on that. 
Tacos, fantastic. Sushi. I just had a great sushi experience for the first mm. time. I've gained even more of an appreciation for sushi. Fabulous. Just like last week, because usually I get the lunch special, maybe on like a weekend or something, you know, just basic rolls, three of them, a lot of food for a little price. But this past week, I just had like this whole sushi experience where there was like chef's pick and I tried a lot of different sashimis that I never had before, and it was just fantastic. The whole experience, oh, oh. the smells, the taste, the texture, yes. everything yes. was fantastic. So I really have a, a new appreciation for sushi. But with donuts, I don't know. They don't really do it for me. Again, with like the cakes, like you said, I could do without it. But it's you like also- not not worth the calories either for me. Like it's just I'm never I never wake up just craving donuts. People can Same. bring like, hey, here's a here here's a brand new box of fresh donuts that I've brought in with a pot of coffee and everyone goes rushing over to get their donuts. I'm like, eh, that's not, not interested. Well, if they're free donuts, then I appreciate them a little more. I always like the chocolate covered <laughs> frosting donuts with the sprinkles on top. But right. what kind of desserts do you like? Like post uh, sushi meal or tacos? Do you like uh, something sweet after I like ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. That's fair. I'm an ice cream guy. There are certain things like a key lime pie. I, I always like key, key lime, lime pie. pie. Like there are certain things that I like for sure. I'm, I don't have zero sweet tooth. I have a handful of peanut refrigerated peanut M&Ms. Next thing, by the way, if peanut M&Ms announces that they're changing their formula along with Coke Zero, we mentioned this earlier, I will lose my mind because I sort of put them in a similar category of something that I indulge in even just a little bit every day. But I don't think so. I think M&Ms is going to leave well enough alone, whereas Coke apparently can't keep their grubby little fingers off of Coke Zero and that formula. But hang on, I want to throw a curveball here, and it's a curveball via my friend Emily, because she saw me tweet. I tweeted about this. I'm like, oh, donuts, easy. So she replies. She says, okay, what if instead of donuts, it was cheese, all cheese? So instead of donuts on there, it's now cheese, bacon, tacos, sushi. What do you get rid of? under those circumstances, and that became much harder for me. My answer, and I had to sort of agonize over this, and I'm, I'm, I'm waffling, I'm equivocating. My answer was bacon, but I'm sort of wondering if it should be tacos. Because sushi stays, I think cheese has to stay. I love cheese. So then process of elimination down to bacon and tacos, ugh. That's tough. I don't often crave bacon. Sometimes I crave tacos, but bacon enhances so many things. Ooh, and if someone makes a fresh frying pan worth of bacon, they put it on, you know, in sort of the grease, they put it on, you know, a paper towel, and it's still sizzling a little bit, and they walk it through the kitchen and you smell it, and they offer you just, you know, one piece of that bacon, you want to get it. Oh, you know, donuts, leave them. You're like, fine. Everyone else can have their donut. I am reaching for that bacon. Maybe I'm talking myself into getting rid of tacos here. What's your answer, Max? I have to agree with you on the bacon. Uh, I'm kind of like a purist myself. So the big plate of bacon in the morning, like with the eggs, I love that. And the smell that wakes you up in the morning, that's just fantastic. That's pretty much the only way you should have bacon. People put bacon on way too many things. I personally think bacon itself is overrated. People put it like in their mac and cheese. People do the bacon wrapped scallops. People put it on this. People put it on that. It's just too much. And I you're gonna get some hate mail. You're gonna get some hate mail. I'll take it. I'll plant my feet on this one, guys. Although some of some of the bacon, here's where I will partially agree with you. Some of the bacon supremacists out there, (laughs) and I know some of them, and I love these people, but. 
I have to remind them sometimes that loving bacon is not a personality trait. And it seems that way. Yeah, it is a little much sometimes. I'm like, it seems like you're talking a little too much about how much you love bacon. It's almost like I'm starting to doubt it for some reason. I agree. And it's I, like it's like you're in the pocket of big pork. <laughs> like the the lobby the lobby has gotten to you somehow. But and by the way, if you're wondering why I haven't brought Quiet Wyatt back into the conversation, it's because his answer is still the same. You replace donuts with cheese, he's still saying sushi. So we know that answer. But you're saying bacon. I'm talking myself maybe over into tacos. Last word, Max. Just with bacon, if you put bacon on something else, the bacon flavor overpowers everything. So it's like you really need to love bacon if you want foods that have bacon incorporated into it. Okay. Well, you can send all your hate Max's way. Don't don't take this out on me, everyone. This is Max speaking for himself, and the views expressed by Max do not reflect those of the Guy Benson show broadly. Although, you know what? If you don't want to heap abuse on Max, just send it over to Christine. You know, just make her weak. She's on vacation. Just let her know how you feel about bacon, and she'll be very confused, and she might have to call in and and weigh in on this tomorrow from vacation. We'll be back here, although I'll be broadcasting from New York tomorrow. I'll be on Gutfeld, the panel, tomorrow night. So we'll talk to you from the Big Apple on tomorrow's edition of The Guy Benson Show. In the meantime... Have a great night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.